Good morning, Risen Hope. It's been a while, so in case you forgot who I am, David Minenberg. Good to see everyone. I'm recording at home, and like you, I'm probably in my sweatpants. <laughs> now, I don't have a printer, so I may be reading a little bit of my notes from the screen, so I ask that you bear with me and trust that God's going to work in spite of my technological shortcomings. Let's begin, however, with a quick word of prayer before we begin the word. Heavenly Father, thank you for this chance we have to come together through technology and share in fellowship as we study your word. Please prepare our hearts to hear from you. Uh, Holy Spirit, we invite you to search us and uh, know our inmost thoughts. Convict us and change us through the power of the gospel. And Lord, speak in spite of my weakness. May your word go forth and multiply within us. In Jesus' name, amen. Greater love has no one than this, that one laid down his life for his friends. As we got, examine God's word these next few weeks leading up to Easter, our focus is going to be on the fact that we worship a risen king. And this morning, I'm going to be taking us through chapters in John's gospel that surround Jesus' last hours before his death, what is commonly referred to as his passion. And this year in particular, the story has had a strange but significant impact on me. My son, Elias, got a picture Bible from Sarah and I this past Christmas, and there are actually uh, three uh, separate stories for Jesus' crucifixion, the garden scene, carrying the cross, and the crucifixion itself. And for about three weeks earlier this year, Jesus or excuse me, Elias insisted on reading all three of these every night before bed. He referred to them as the Jesus ouchie stories. Now, it struck me for obvious reasons that my three-year-old was fascinated with the death of Jesus. But how do you explain the death of our Savior to a three-year-old? For that matter, how do you explain the passion to anyone, child or adult? This morning, we're going to examine this story through the Gospel of John, and my hope is that in it, we will see this impossibly gracious gift that was given to us shows that our risen king is indeed sovereign and in control. Now, I remember playing high school football growing up, and I'm not sure how many of you played sports, but perhaps you can relate to me being not awesome growing up. <laughs> uh, surprising, I know, but when you're on the freshman squad, everyone gets a chance to play, basically. So anyway, we're, uh, we're playing a team that was supposed to be better than us, and somehow the game's almost over and we have a seven-point lead. A punter, however, kicks the worst punt of all time. It actually goes behind us, and the other team is quickly score in scoring position with less than two minutes to play. So picture the scene. David Menenberg is playing cornerback on the defense, and as our opponents are moving quickly downfield, I start sweating. I never was a great tackler to begin with, and I knew that if the play came toward me, it wasn't going to be good. Sure enough, the play comes to my side. I go to wrap up the guy and totally miss. Uh, they score, but we're still up one point. I'm a little dejected, a little shaken up, but we still have a lead. The pressure is on. Now, of course, they go for two, and guess which side they take? Mine. This time, I made the tackle. Unfortunately, it was in the end zone, and we lost the game. Now, that was the longest bus ride home I've ever experienced. It was a high-pressure situation, and I completely crumbled. People were depending on me. My team was depending on me, and I let them down. Now, the story came to my mind uh, when I thought about our Lord Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night he was betrayed and the inevitable situation that lay ahead of him. I'm not, compared to, my, not to compare myself to uh, Jesus, but we both knew what was going to happen next. However, unlike our Lord, I was not capable of carrying the weight of my burden. You see, most of us have at one time or another been faced with looming deadlines, high-pressure situations, trials, and difficult decisions. Many of us have had to make uh, these decisions with people counting on us, with high stakes. 
Now, whether we triumphed or buckled under the pressure, I'm sure uh, there have been times in all of our lives where we felt like the weight of the world was on our shoulders. And yet, pictured next to our Lord, our troubles become trite because the God-man is the only person in all history that actually did have the weight of the world on his shoulders. Please turn to John's Gospel. Let's see how he faced this overwhelming pressure. Now, uh, we're going to be just reading portions of the Passion uh, narrative today, but I would encourage you uh, to read the entire story in all four Gospels as you prepare your hearts for Easter Sunday. Now, the last week of Jesus' life actually begins for us in John chapter 12 when he triumphantly enters Jerusalem. This is known as Palm Sunday. In John 13 through 16, we see the famous Last Supper scene in which Jesus prepares his disciples for the things uh, to come. He washes their feet, he warns them of the coming betrayal, and he gives them instructions on how to love each other in the face of great persecution. Then, of course, we have uh, the famous high priestly prayer in John 17. This is where Jesus uh, talks to the Father and expresses his desire uh, to be with uh, his disciples and for his disciples to be with the Father. Jesus well understands what's about to take place, and he knows the eventual outcome. Though he prays on his own behalf in Luke uh, chapter 22, he could not stop thinking about those he loved, even with the weight of the world on his shoulders. The intensity and burden of the looming future weighed so heavily on our Savior that Luke records that he prayed to the point that his sweat was like drops of blood. But Jesus was not like I was during that football game. He was in complete control, and he was born to handle the pressure. Let's read what John writes in chapter 18, starting in verse 3. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. I am he, he replied, and Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Therefore he again asked them, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you I am he. So if you seek me, let these go their way, to fulfill the word which he spoke. Of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. Simon Peter then, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. And the slave's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put the sword into the sheath, this, this cup which the Father has given me. Shall I not drink it? Now I want you to notice a few things here. First, who is with Jesus? Matthew records that with him are his inner circle, Peter, James, and John. Now with Jesus, if you're keeping track, that's four people. Now this is important uh, because in John we see that in addition to temple guards and Jewish soldiers from the Pharisees, a cohort accompanies Judas to arrest Jesus. Now, what's a cohort, you may ask? Well, it's anywhere between 300 and 600 highly trained Roman soldiers sent to arrest one Jewish carpenter. Now, I mention this because it plays into the political setting that we're going to get into in just a minute here, but for now, it seems likely that Pilate was not entirely clueless about who Jesus was and what the Jewish leaders were up to. You see, he alone could detach that many soldiers, and certainly with the political connections of the Sanhedrin and the high priest, they could easily have been granted this favor. But next, I want you to see how uh, in verses 4 through 8, Jesus boldly approaches these soldiers, hundreds of them. And believe me, they are well known for terrorizing and even killing Jews for pleasure. And he questions them. Look at verse 6. It says that they fell, these soldiers 
fell to the ground. So often I think we have pictured this garden scene and looked helplessly on as our Lord was unjustly taken and beaten. But the beloved disciple presents for us a picture of Jesus as being in complete control of the situation. This is going to continue as we look at his so-called trials. Looking at verse 19 of chapter 18, it says, The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temple, where all the Jews came, came together, and I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I have said. When he said this, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus, saying, Is that the way you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken wrongly, testify to the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? Jesus is here surrounded by scores of people, most of whom want nothing short of his blood. They are his enemies, and they're accusing him. His life is on the line, and he's questioning them. Going back to cracking under pressure, I think back to my childhood, of course, I was a very shy kid, and if ever I was embarrassed, uh, even just a little bit, my face would turn brick red. I don't know how or why this changed, but I remember there would be times where one of my brothers did something wrong, and my parents weren't quite sure who did it, so they would interrogate all of us. And I vividly remembered, though, turning brick red and having this, this huge lump in my throat, actually feeling guilty because I was simply being accused. All this to say, probably wouldn't make a great witness in a trial of any kind. Maybe some of you can relate. But look at how Jesus handles this. He turns the interrogation back on those who are accusing him. And keep in mind, too, who Jesus is talking to. He's talking to the high priest. A modern-day equivalent, if it helps, would be like a Catholic addressing the Pope. The high priest to the Jews was both the highest religious and social authority for the people at the time. And look at how Jesus handles him. You see, in Jewish law, it was illegal for someone to be condemned without the testimony of at least two witnesses. Jesus knows this, and he demands that they produce witnesses to back up this great injustice. You see, the risen king is in control. He gets bounced around to various local authorities after this, and by morning he's in front of Pilate, the Roman governor. And I want you to notice how he addresses the highest political authority in the land. In verse 33, it says, Therefore, Pilate entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Are you saying this of your own initiative, or did others tell you about me? Pilate answered, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and chief priests delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered him, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? Now, believe it or not, I had been pulled over before for speeding. As most teenage boys do, I drove a little faster than the speed limit, and it caught up to me eventually. I remember getting pulled over this one time and just having this gut-wrenching feeling of guilt in the pit of my stomach as I begged and pleaded for mercy to the officer. How quickly we all would do anything to save our own skin. But look at Jesus. He controls the, his situation from start to finish. He later tells Pilate that Pilate would have no authority over him unless it had been given to him from above. The audacity of our risen king. We see Pilate buckle under the political pressure 
uh, placed on him by the Jewish leaders. Look at what happens in verse 38. Pilate again says to him, what is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt with him. But you have a custom that I release someone for you at the Passover. Do you wish that I release you, the king of the Jews? So they cried out again, saying, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. Pilate uh, then took Jesus and scourged him. Pilate, he's not foolish. He sees no guilt in Jesus. He wants no part of it. In fact, the other gospel writers record that to avoid responsibility, he actually sends Jesus to another local ruler, Herod, only to have Jesus sent back to him. He caters to the mob, though, who attack his loyalty to Rome in order to manipulate the situation. But like me on that fateful football field, Pilate buckles under the pressure. Luke records that he released the man that they were asking for who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, but delivered Jesus to their will. This whole scene is ironic for several reasons. First, Pilate, seeking to avoid a riot if he doesn't pander to the mob, releases a convicted rebel who had led an insurrection, a riot, against Rome. I imagine this remarkable scene where Jesus passes Barabbas on his way to be flogged. Think of Barabbas, who willfully committed murder and rebellion and was paying the just penalty for his crime, walking past an innocent man who would take his place. I read this story over and over again throughout the years, and every time I get, I get so frustrated with the mob and I become indignant toward Barabbas because he was guilty. He deserved to die. But as I reflected on the story this last couple of weeks, I, I was just struck by how perfectly this historical figure symbolized each one of us. Paul writes in Romans that the wages of sin is death. That is, the just penalty under God's law for our crimes against him and against our fellow man is nothing short of death and eternal separation from our Creator. You may or may not agree with this. You may not think it's fair. But the reality is undeniable. Each one of us will one day die justly for our sins. You can feel it in, the in your stomach just as surely as I felt my own guilt when I got pulled over for speeding. I was busted and there was nothing I could do but plead for mercy. This is why this passion story is so incredible. Now, I'm going to spare you the grisly details of the crucifixion. If you're interested, watch Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ. Uh, but suffice it to say, Jesus suffers what is arguably the most agonizing execution ever devised by the hands of men. And he was innocent. He was innocent. John records that Jesus' garments were divided among the guards to fulfill the prophecy. A crown of thorns was placed on his head. Historians think that these thorns uh, were likely from the date palm, which has thorns that grow up to 12 inches long. And they nailed him to the cross, likely through his ankles and his wrists, in a position that made him press down on his wounds in order simply not suffocate. After hours of this, he says in triumph, it is finished and died. He even chooses the exact moment to give up his spirit because again, the risen king is in control. The guards then spear his side to make sure he's dead. And two secret disciples, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, they give Jesus a king's burial. Now, as I reflected on the situation that Jesus faced and how he met it head on and maintained his composure throughout and controlled the course of events, I couldn't help but think to myself, why? Why would he let them do these things to him if he was innocent? And as I looked again at the story, the story of this the greatest injustice of all time, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, I asked myself, does this injustice make me mad? Is something stirred within me when I think of the Son of God 
the King of glory, being nailed to the cross for the sins of mankind, my sins, crimes that he did not commit. Paul writes that he made him who knew no sin be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Why would he do this? Going back to my original question, how can we explain the Jesus ouchy story to a three-year-old or anyone else? It doesn't make sense. The Apostle John gives us an answer, fortunately, in his first epistle. Chapter 4, he says, By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Paul writes in Romans, But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Later in that same chapter, Paul tells us that we were actually enemies of God. Now, I opened this morning by reading a quote from Jesus about him laying his life down for his friends to demonstrate his love. But think about what Paul is saying. God demonstrates his love to us, his enemies, while we were actively sinning against him. We were helpless, my friends, powerless against the tide of God's wrath which we incurred. There was nothing we could do but idly wait in our jail cell like Barabbas, knowing that our fate was sealed. Picture it. All of a sudden, the doors open, and we are led out of the dungeon and into the light. We pass by the Christ, who smiles at us lovingly as he marches willingly to pay the penalty for our crimes. One of my seminary professors was a missionary in the Ukraine, uh, and he was interviewing recent converts who were applying for membership at their church. And about halfway through the interviews, the pastor looks up from his paperwork to see the next interviewee, who is this just massive guy uh, in his 40s. He had cropped hair and was covered head to toe in prison tattoos. And, and the pastor begins the interview with a little bit of trepidation, but when he gets to the last question, he calmly asks the ex-con, what is it that you love most about Jesus? The large man lowered his head and, and began to weep. The surprised pastor waited uh, for this broken man to regain his composure and asked him again, what is, what is that you love most about Jesus? The man looks up, wipes his tears from his eyes, and he replies, his mercy. His mercy. The author of Hebrews records that for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising its shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus enjoyed the cross or looked forward to suffering, but because he knew that his suffering meant and that through his incomprehensible mercy, we have life. That is why he had joy. Our risen king was in control from start to finish, and he demonstrated his love and mercy on us, his enemies, so that we might live through him. My friends, we are living in very interesting times. But these types of events have happened many times before. Plagues, diseases, quarantines, famines. The church has endured these through all these things because the church is built on a risen king, not on some long-dead Jewish carpenter. It is precisely because he has risen that we need not fear, because he is in control, not us. I know it's difficult, the suffering, the potential for suffering, and the possibility of death. These all weigh on us because we're human. But remember that our Lord is ever faithful. He is in control. Think of the words of the old hymn. Cast your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. We're going to take communion here this morning, and as we reflect on God's love and mercy, I want you to think about where you are with God.
On the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, and this is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This morning we are here to remember the love and mercy that Jesus demonstrated to us when he took our place and paid the penalty for our crimes on the cross. This is what mercy is. And he has shown us mercy because he loves us. Oh, how he loves us, my friends. And it's fitting that we take communion today because as I read uh, from Paul's letter, as I read from Paul's letter to the Corinthians, when we eat the bread and drink the cup, we are remembering Jesus. We are remembering what he did for us. The weight of the world was on his shoulders. And our Lord, rather than crumbling and running in the face of fear and difficulty, boldly took control of the situation and faced his death like only the Son of God could do. And he paid for our sins. He paid it all because he is merciful and because he loves us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we had this morning to hear from you and to hear from your word. Lord, as we reflect on the sacrifice you made on our behalf on the cross, we are reminded that you did so willingly. You said in John's gospel that you lay down your life willingly. No one demands it of you. You did this because you loved us so deeply, even though we were and are at times your enemy. Lord, you have rescued us from sin. You have rescued us from death. And we are forever grateful. I pray that as we, we, we think on these things, that they would not become a once annual thing at Easter time, but something that we take hold of and take comfort in every day of our lives, especially now as we face the uncertainties that are in our world uh, with this virus that is this pandemic that is spreading fear to the world. Lord, let us rest on your unchanging grace. Let us take solace in knowing that you are good, that you are God, that our risen King is in control. Be with us, we pray this week, and may your light shine boldly and brightly through us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.